Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuham. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, October 30th, 2022. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's the day before Halloween. Is this Hall- All Hallows Eve or something like that? Well, that would be Halloween. That's what Halloween oh, really? means. I thought yeah. it was the day before. Okay. No. It's not a Jewish no, no, no. holiday. I don't really know that much about it. Um, November 1st is Saints Day, All Saints Day, or All Hallows. All Hallows Day or Halloween. Oh, really? Is it? Yeah. Okay. So Halloween is the night before they that. They didn't teach this in Jericho High School. I, I didn't well, they, they didn't teach it at the Warner Memorial Presbyterian either. Really? <laughs> but, uh, what is it, a I Druid holiday or something like that? I mean, what? I, Druid? Is it a Druid holiday? I have, I have really no idea. Okay. We'll look into that. <laughs> we'll know next year. You're putting me on the spot here. Yeah, it's, it's okay. You, you know so much more about this than I do. I'm just on to the candy Yes, right, yeah. So I, um, you know, because I had to make the costumes. Oh, that's right. You had to make the costumes. Well, I was no help. You, you were, were no help. You were an award-winning help. costume maker. Your children were on display. Listen, you were the. They were the envy of all the other children in Cranberry, New Jersey. Admit it. My Take children, credit for my it. children, award-winning often costumes had some extremely lame costumes. I, well, you proof that, of yeah. which no, yeah. we found an old photograph yeah. from one of Granger's. You know. School classes right. and the teacher took pictures. Yeah, and Granger looks pretty motley. Yeah, you know he looks. You know, he it, looks happy. No, He's smiling in Granger's little mind. Not that Instagrammable. Was, that, that was I a mean, good costume. Mothers today are under much more Damn pressure we, than I, I was. Do, do I, have I had these. Story? I had these fluffy magical right. ideas about what's important is that the child shows their creativity, uh, and creates their own costume. Who told you that? That's ridiculous. <laughs> I, you know, it was my fantasy. That's like having the father make the costume. I gave that up at a certain point. You know, yeah. that's how we got to the Look, point of... You, but you, here's what you can't Jack deny. Skellington. You, uh, well, and the human just bologna going to sandwich. Say, I was just going... There you go. These are the words. Ham sandwich, right? The uh, hardware store used to have a... No, no, no. You've told that story. I'm not going to tell the long no. story. I'm just going to say that you want to know... Each of these kids, over three years, three years in a row... Won the five dollar prize for the award winning costume made by you. Probably due to bad weather, and no one else made it to the you buy a lot of hardware. I mean, but the the point of the the matter is, you were you made award winning costumes. So in any event, anyway, it's definitely fall. It's fall. Yeah, and I think we have just this last week was the peak of fall color in this area. Well, it's it's a nice day today. It's a nice day today. We got to get out after this. On Wednesday or Tuesday, one of these days, I had a a terrific bike ride. Mm -hmm. I've had some great drives. Just driving up to see Hazi in the north has been beautiful. He's got one, though. He's got a costume. costume. He He doesn't need it. He can carry it off without it. And it's gotten crisp. I went to to the uh, sweet corn people today. They said, ah, ah, ah. No more corn. We've had the frost. There ain't no corn. All right. Well, chose are genuine. Um, so, authentic. Uh, so that was disappointing. So, um, But uh, there was an article this week in the New York Times about making Brunswick stew, which seems like a great dish really? for cold, chilly weather. I, you know, I, I don't uh, I don't cotton the Brunswick stew so much, but go ahead. Have you ever had Brunswick stew? Well, I've had it in the school cafeteria in really? growing up. Yeah. Really? And it was not it's, something it's, you'd want to eat. It's from Virginia's Brunswick County. It looked like trash. Or maybe Georgia's Brunswick County. It looked like County. stuff that was a runoff. Or maybe North Carolina. It's run, not really clear. Runoff from some other recipe. It was well, a mixture of One of the theories and, is, it goes way back. It's yeah. And uh, so here, the they describe it as... A motley mix of shredded meat, 
yeah. with the Virginia Trinity of tomatoes, corn, and butter beans. I'll go with motley. I butter beans, also known as lima beans. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Okay. And one of the theories of where it came from is that it was uh, in the 19th century, some fellows were on a um, hunting trip. Yeah. And their cook threw the squirrels they had uh, oh, God. Yeah. Um, caught, yeah. caught yeah. in I, with some... Uh, I believe that. ...with the vegetables that were available. That's the kind I had. I had the and squirrel kind. That became... <laughs> <laughs> I've never had it with squirrels. But when we were growing up, yeah. my father in Kensington, Maryland, yeah. had an office space uh, for his business, Granger and Oliver Test Borings. Mm-hmm. And next to it, there was a fellow who opened a North Carolina Brunswick stew shop. What? And he sold Brunswick stew and uh, hush puppies. Did people buy it? People bought it. We ate it frequently. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it was a very convenient. The fact that your family he sold it in big court containers. You probably got it as gifts. There were leftovers. But did other people buy it? Was this a viable business? Uh, no, it didn't last too long. No, His name was Ed, yeah. and I forget what else he sold. He must have sold something else. Squirrel pelts. Not too much else. Squirrel pelts. But, uh, yeah. you know, no, it's good. It kind of all mellows together. The mm. tomatoes, oh, the meat. Yeah. You usually make it with chicken these days, mm. okay? Yeah. Although, theoretically, some people throw in some beef chuck or something yeah. to, to punch up the flavor. I don't know. But uh, I may give it a shot, but I may have to. Also make uh, some hush puppies I'll go with on that. the side. I'll go with that. But that's, that's not a winter food, is it? It's a super winter food. Oh, is sure it, it is. Okay. It's something they they would cook in great crocks. Yeah. You know, like uh, for hours and hours and hours. So uh, I think, uh, in fact, I think it being hot is one of the uh, main um, properties. Of the dish. Did Ed sell hush hush puppies also? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's where I learned about hush puppies, Uh, to be honest. Now we know. I always loved hush puppies. So, you know, uh, there's a Brunswick stew recipe in the New York Times this week. It it looks completely conventional. Yeah, good. um, And not something from the 19th century. So people might want to give that a try. Well, listen, what the the fall is really famous for is the World Series kind of thing. And the baseball playoffs. And as you know... I think there's people out there eating some Brunswick stew as they watch you know, the World I, Series. I can, do you think there's any chance that they're selling that in Philadelphia as, as they're hosting the World Zero. Series? Zero. Okay. It's too but bad. in some places where they serve barbecue, they're not selling it in Brunswick Houston. stew is a side dish. Yeah, of course. This caught me by surprise. I was in some restaurant that yeah. did that. Yeah. And they said, what do you want as your side? You yeah. know? Fries, macaroni, macaroni, Brunswick, Brunswick stew, and I said, Brunswick stew. You know how good that Brunswick stew is. That's not a side is. dish. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing Awful. that. Awful. Yeah. Okay, you'd be begging for macaroni. So in any event, the Phils, uh, the fighting Phils, are in the World Series, and uh, they're kind of interesting. I'm not a Philly fan. I'm a Met fan, but uh, there was an interesting article about uh, about JT Real Muto, who's the store shortstop for Philly. Well, and tell I, me, who do you like in the series? Houston. Okay. Um, Houston. I mean, I'll just tell you right now, I think uh, if you wanted 30 seconds of real baseball, I think uh, Zach Wheeler is hurt, honestly. I don't think anyone's talking about it. And if Zach Wheeler is hurt, forget it. Uh, That's the top pitcher on the Phillies. So in any event, putting that aside, um, uh, Real Muto is generally recognized as the best catcher in baseball. 
And what's interesting... Okay, so he's the Philly catcher. He's the Philly catcher. And he does say in this article that he almost signed with the Mets, which is kind of sad to read now, after the fact. <laughs> Rubbing salt in the wound. Rather than getting the best hitting catcher in the majors, the Mets uh, got McCann, who's the worst hitting catcher in the majors. But let's put that aside. The, the point of the article that jumped out at me is that Real Muto comes from a wrestling background, a wrestling heritage. And I don't mean that there are people in his family who wrestled in high school. That's not what I mean. What I mean is his uncle, namely his mother's brother, is a man named John Smith, who apparently is the most celebrated freestyle wrestler in the history of United States wrestling. And it has a picture of John Smith here uh, on, on the day as having won the 1988 Olympic gold medal in Korea. And it's a close family. So, uh, he, you know, John Smith has something to say about Neil Muto. Uh, although he has nothing to say about baseball. He says he doesn't know anything about baseball. And this interview kind of proves it. Uh, he doesn't even seem to know that uh, Real Muto goes by JT. He calls him Jake. Uh, his real well, that's name is, often the case. There's fine. a family name no that's criticism. different from your... His, his name, just so we know, for the record, it's Jacob Tyler Real Muto. That's how you get the Where JT. is he from? Oh, I don't know. Don't know where he's from. Uh, da, 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 Oklahoma. Okay. And, you know, Oklahoma, very big wrestling community in Oklahoma. You know right. That. But, you know, Pennsylvania is a big wrestling community. Right. But it's not where he's from. So uh, what Smith says is this, which is kind of interesting. Uh, he, he says there are certain skills that you develop when you're young uh, well, from wrestling. And the point here being that Rio Muto grew up wrestling because this was his heritage. Uh, and as you grow, you still have it. You get strength from wrestling in your legs and your hips. Wrestling has a tendency of strengthening those hips and your legs and your torso. And I think, more importantly, this is Smith, you also develop a level of competitiveness that's more important than all the conditioning. And I think that might be true. I mean, I think Viral Muto is is in good stead by, by the wrestling background. I think you're probably right. I've always thought wrestling is a very tough sport yeah. um, because it's one-on-one. Yeah. And uh, you really need some real toughness and some sense that uh, there are two people in this ring, I'm the best one. Well, you see, that's the mental <laughs> you know? side. So here's what Miyamoto says, which is very similar to what you were saying. He says, wrestling is just hard on your body and hard on your mind. Once you can get through a wrestling season, I feel like you can pretty much do anything in sports. I, I believe that. And I'm just speaking not as a wrestler, mm-hmm. but I come from a wrestling family. Yeah. You know, my father wrestled in college. My brothers wrestled, wrestled in high school and so forth. And, you know, it uh, um, definitely tough, tough sport, physically and mentally. Right. And physically in a lot of ways, you know, all that making weight. Well, look, and you, you know, working it. out and real so Muto on. is like the most. You, you develop a real psychological toughness, I think. That's the point of this article, and, and real Muto happens to be the most athletic catcher in uh, in uh, baseball. But you know, I won't go into any more details except to say it's not just he grew up wrestling in school, which he did. He grew up wrestling his cousins all the time. Yeah, that's what they did. Yeah, they wrestled each other. Oh yeah, they, they, you know, all the um, there was a constant sort of clinking of uh, the tchotchkes on my parents' um, bookcases. When your brother because it, or my father, you know, in the living room on the Kerman rug. Yeah, you wrestle with your brother. Oh, oh yeah. Oh god. Oh yeah. Well, Not at full strength or anything, but um, they definitely wrestled. There was a wrestling mat in the basement. Yeah. And it was not a finished basement or anything. It was just down there next to the boiler. 
And uh, but there was also, you know, an Oriental rug is perfectly good surface for wrestling on. So that was, uh, you know, kind of a a light motif right. in our household as well. Well, there was another article uh, about the Phillies, which was kind of interesting, um, and uh, has to do with the fact that, the, and I had forgotten this, that the well, it's a long time ago. The Phillies played the Houston in the postseason, Houston Astros in the postseason, previously. Uh, in 1980. Now, the thing to keep in mind, turns out 1980 is over 40 years ago, which I didn't know either. But uh, the thing to keep in mind about that is this. Houston was in the National League then, which means that this was not a World Series. This was a playoff series, mm-hmm. a five-game playoff series. And uh, and yet, it was a very hard-fought playoff series. There were two superior teams. They had a lot at stake. And they were filled with superstars who went to the Hall of Fame. It's a picture here of... Pete Rose banging into the catcher named uh, Bruce Boshi, who be, who's going to be a Hall of Fame manager. He's been a great manager since then. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got uh, Nolan Ryan. You've got Greg Lozinski. You remember Greg Lozinski, Larry Boa, Gary Maddox, and uh, Mike Schmidt, the Hall of Fame third baseman, one of the greatest players of all time. And the article focuses on Mike Schmidt and takes Mike Schmidt back to uh, an at-bat he had uh, – with the uh, you know with team one run down in the bottom of the ninth inning, in a critical moment in the fifth deciding game, and he struck out, he struck out, and he flashed back to that as he was watching Bryce Harper, who was in a similar situation in the deciding game in the playoff series against San Diego in the bottom of the eighth inning with a man on, but they were down by a run, and he has two strikes on Bryce Harper and Schmidt's watching this. And Bryce Harper hits a home run to the opposite field. And, of course, the Phils win the game in advance. And he's overwhelmed. He says, that's so impossibly hard to do. And he says that I was in that same situation. And I, Mike Schmidt, parenthetically the greatest, one of the greatest hitters of all time, failed. And he says he's never uh, gotten over it. And, and they tell the story about that game, which I won't bore you with. It's a fantastic game. You can't expect to see another one like it with the league going back and forth and so on. But... Uh, what happened after Schmidt struck out is the next batter, a fellow named Del Unter, who couldn't hit a lick, got a hit. And the Phillies won the game. And notwithstanding that Schmidt failed, um, they advanced. Mm-hmm. And when Schmidt's asked about uh, the biggest hit in his career, he said it's Del Unter's hit. Because mm-hmm. if Del Unter doesn't get a hit, I would have retired a failure yeah. for the Phillies. Uh-huh. And, it, and he said... It's had such a strong effect on him, uh, he couldn't get over it. He says he celebrated with his teammates when they won the game and they advanced, but he couldn't hide the emptiness he felt. And he was among the last to board the bus. And his teammates gave him a standing ovation that allowed him to relax. And looking back, he's embarrassed by this. He said he should not have been that selfish in such a moment of joy. He said, I shouldn't, should have gotten on the bus yelling and screaming, let's go, way to go. He said, that's what Bryce Harper would have done. So, <laughs> it's funny. All right. So, I've got a couple of travel notes here. Yeah. All right. One is about luxury overnight buses. Well, that's, this is right up my alley. Why it's, is that? It sounds inexpensive. It sounds inexpensive, but it sounds slow. I'll say. Well, apparently they have, um, but, but inexpensive. They have overnight, uh, mm-hmm. lo- you know, many more overnight uh, buses in um, 
Latin America and Asia, they say. All right, but, let's, but, but the let's idea the has US, not yet right. taken hold. It's going to in the U.S. Yeah. and you have all those really cheapo buses, right. Five the one dollar to Miami, you know, you know right. mega buses right. going to Boston, you know, between yeah. New York and Washington and so on. Um, but uh, there, apparently, there are a couple companies uh, flirting with playing around with uh, luxury buses, seats that actually. Go completely flat, You're so you can really sleep. Really, you know, fully relax. So um, that company is called Napaway, and oh. they do uh, a run between Nashville and Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it costs one hundred and twenty-five dollars. I don't know how far that is, do you? It's pretty far. Okay, <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's far enough to sleep. So yeah, yeah, it's eleven hours. Wow. Okay. Yeah, okay. Nashville's far away. Mm. And um, from us, anyway. 11 hours in. And how much does he say? 125. That's not bad. No. And uh, so uh, they, you know, they have the story of somebody who wanted to go to a, you know, some concert and uh, they could fly inexpensively to the concert, but couldn't get anything cheaper than $600 to get home. So he signed up for the bus. His friends all made fun of him. But it, uh, you know, apparently it worked out pretty well. There's no food, but there is a bathroom. Yeah. And uh, you know you get you get two seats and they combine into mm-hmm. nicely into one and they say it's so much cheaper to do yeah. than fly a plane mm-hmm. you know in terms of how much um, staff it takes and fuel and everything else they, you know they didn't they don't need to be you know at a huge capacity right. on every run. Uh, so you know maybe well, you it has probably a also to get into it. the city. You don't have to spend the time and money in yeah. terms of getting yeah, to the no. airport. And then there's another. There's a a luxury uh, bu- uh, bus that goes between I think I guess Washington and New York, mm-hmm. um, and the jet. And you know they have snacks and coffee, wine and soda. It's most it's supposed to feel like you're on a private jet, mm-hmm. but you're on uh, you know. Uh, a bus mm-hmm. uh, going four hours or maybe more. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the problem. When there's traffic, uh, yeah, but you don't you're have, stuck. But you don't have any weather delay. You don't have uh, the buses well, canceled you, because you it's could, raining. Well, you can't have some weather delays, yeah, that, I, I would I, think. Not my point. Uh, but here's the problem, getting yeah. to the bus. Yeah. I mean, it's great if you live in or near yeah. the city where these well, buses are running from. Sure. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, even, even for us, you know, if we wanted to take a bus to, um, a fancy bus to Washington or somewhere, we'd have to go into New York. Well, unless they open in Philadelphia. But, uh, you know, it'll be interesting since, uh, you know, there's been so much, uh, mess with air travel Mm -hmm. lately in terms of, uh, delays and cancellations and getting, uh, staffing. Well, maybe that's what they're yeah. You, you're it's talking on Milan also, right? Well, you know, there's uh, the New York Times runs uh, a column or a page. And, you know, the New York Times has decimated its travel section. I but mean, but they really since do, COVID, right? I thought they, they have back. little bits, but yeah. it's not. It's a it's one or two pages. Mm-hmm. It's not like a whole section okay. that they used to have. And uh, they have something called 36 hours in particular city. Right. This week it was on Milan. Right. And of course, Milan, one of my favorite uh, um, European cities for various reasons, and uh, brought me back. Um, we've made several trips there. Possibly the best one 
was to Milan in 2013 to see our nephew, Sean Abuhoff, right. uh, Michelson, play American football uh, in Milan in 2013. And uh, Sean was our tour guide, mm -hmm. more or less. He arranged uh, dinners that we went to and you know, recommended restaurants. And one of his big re recommendations, one of his, you know, gotta do it yeah. recommendations. In fact, he came, he met us at our hotel. We're just kind of all dazed, you know, with Tired. jet lag. Yes. And he says, I'm, you know, he calls up to the room and he says, I'm here. Let's go to the Duomo. And, uh, we went to, he said, this is my favorite thing to do, to go to the roof of the Duomo, the big cathedral mm -hmm. in Milan. And it indeed was spectacular. It was a great Is that view. the first time you were there or had you been there before? I had been to Milan. We had been to Milan The Duomo, I, you know, I don't have huge recollections, but mm. I had not ever gone on the roof. Okay. Sure, I went, you know, walked through it, mm. uh, but not on the roof. And Sean was right. It was it was just a spectacular experience. And, um, you know, we took all pictures of us standing against the skyline. And does the and article everything. say go to the roof also? Yeah, that's what oh. it says to do. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Go up on the roof. Sure. And uh, so just, you know, brought back some really great memories mm. of... Uh, being in Milan with Sean mm -hmm. and watching his team play. Mm -hmm. And they played at an old velodrome mm -hmm. and uh, the Milano Seamen. Right. And he took his team to the Italian um, Super Bowl Super Bowl of American football. Mm -hmm. And he was one of two Americans. Americans. Yeah. That, or I don't know exactly how many Americans were on the team. Two. But you could only have two. Right. Um on any team. They're ringers. Ringers. Well, yeah. of course they are. Yeah. And, but all the guys had day jobs or whatever. You know, it's not like it was a professional team, except Sean. Except Sean. <laughs> that well, was he, he probably got some money that they didn't get. I, mean, I know he did, as a matter of fact. That's well, let's not, let's not be announcing this on <laughs> network television. Well, that's the way it worked. I mean, what can I tell you? But uh, that, that, was, that was a great, great trip. Mm -hmm. We were... Um, all right. Yeah, so that brought back good memories good of Sean. Good memories. Who is now... A um, assistant DA? Yeah, I don't know how, what the titles are. He's in the in DA's office in Miami. Yeah, so he's got this whole fab fabulous legal career going. Right, right. So he's grown up, all grown up. No. No? <laughs> well, why should Michael's children be any more grown up than mine? I don't I don't see them as grown up, it's, uh, but he's, he's getting there. You, you fathers are tough. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's Milan. Yeah. Luxury and, buses. Right. And... Um, you made me read an article. I made you read an article. About a magician. I brought to your attention a magician. an article about a magician. I can't even think of anything that is less in my wheelhouse than going to see a magician. But it was interesting, wasn't it? I'm dying to go. <laughs> I can't even believe it. Yeah. And I don't even know why. Right. I have no idea why. It's the not guy like I, is a very I don't understand guy. what he does. He's not sawing people in right. half His or name anything is Aussie, or disappearing. Aussie Wind. Aussie Wind. Yeah. He has a show called Aussie Wind's Inner Circle. Right. And it's uh, just it's in a little it's in a place called the gym at Hud at Judson. Yeah. Um, off Washington Square right. in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, right. he does card tricks. 
not with playing cards. You walk in, you write your name on the back of a card. They don't give the, the detail. I know that. All everything you said is true, but they don't quite give the details of And you hand him these cards and he does crazy things the with them. The point is... They, he's, the, the, he's, the article keeps saying you can't imagine this is possible. And he's, they There's said no he's way a brilliant this is possible. Magician, but what, what 70 minutes. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's Israeli, right? He yeah. left Israel. Yeah. Came to New York. Started out like doing the balloon toys right. at Toys R Us or whatever, mm-hmm. and doing children's parties and things. And before you know it, Penn and Teller are begging him to be on their show. You skipped a little bit of time there. I'm yes. trying, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be uh, yeah, economic he, here. They, they make the point. wins. He seems to have an engaging personality. They, they, they quote him at the beginning, he's doing some trick, and he's in the middle of it, and he says to the people, Well, listen, this doesn't always work. Sometimes it doesn't work. But, you know, if, if it doesn't work, uh, we'll all remember we had a good time up to this point, right? You know, he's that kind of guy. He, they said he established... They say he has a great personality. Yeah. Okay, big personality, great technical chops, and he's incredibly inventive. I, I can't believe it. I don't know. Um, uh, I'm glad I drew you I'm in. really... Uh, okay, good. Good. I, I don't get it. I don't get we'll, it. We'll take the bus, and we'll go, and we'll see what, he, what he's got. Uh, that's, we'll put that on the list. Okay, great. Uh, so there was uh, an obituary that uh, I saw that kind of jumped out at me was that John J. Osborne Jr. died. He wrote The Paper Chase. And The Paper Chase, I never read The Paper Chase. I saw the movie. Uh, and it's the story of uh, a 1L, a uh, first-year law student at Harvard Law School. And uh, famously, uh, it's uh, the relationship that encounters between the first-year law student uh, and this extremely demanding professor who would come to a class in a large lecture hall and would call people, uh, you know, just pulling a name uh, out of the long list of the 200 people in the class and quiz them as to what was this case about, what's the holding here, what, you know, what should the judge have done. Uh, and if the Basically, case- it's so, not as if you would ask questions. He's yeah. breaking them over the course. Well, it's, it's, it's called know? the Socratic and, method. Times. Okay. So theoretically, it's a matter of engaging the students and, and getting them into a dialogue that's a substantive dialogue. But, but it was the hellishness of but, it. Well, it's the hellishness of it in the sense that most students, or many students, or some students, were unprepared. And what he would do uh, as the professor is he would be very harsh with the students who are unprepared, and frankly, very harsh with the students who might have been somewhat prepared, this but, movie... but not able to give any really valid or valuable substantive answers. So it was a very demanding professor, and it was very hard on the students. Yes. And it built tough students, or? Well, it was exactly what the experience was uh, that I had in law school at Columbia. That's the way they did it then. And uh, Wait, Did this movie come out before or after you... Went to law school. Uh, just a few years before. It came out in 73. And I, so you, I, went, you saw this uh, and you still went to law school. Yeah, I'm not going to be put off by that. So it was, I went to law school, started in 75. Um, and, and just to complete the point on Osborne, Osborne was a Harvard law student. So he, he just wrote what he experienced firsthand. Um, and there were, as I said, there were several students, professors at Harvard who did this way, several at Columbia. That's the way it was often done. And what's interesting uh, is that uh, that's it appears that's not the way it's done anymore. I mean, I haven't done a survey on it. I teach law school now, so I talk to students. I don't do it that way, but I don't have a large class like that. I couldn't, couldn't pull that off anyway. Um, 
But I talk to the students about their other classes, and especially what's first year like, and do they have large lecture halls, or do they have a hectoring professor or a demanding professor? And the answer is no, 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 no. And, and the vibe is, is very much not that. The vibe is very much putting that in the past, uh, you know, sort of a softer, gentler, more supportive approach. And Osborne himself uh, is quoted in the obituary as advocating uh, the gentler approach. He actually became a law professor. Uh, and uh, they have a quote here in which he says that, he says, I explained to my students that I'm not going to call on anyone. They will have to volunteer to talk. Why am I not going to call on students? I am not clairvoyant like those other professors. I have no idea which students have something to contribute to the discussion. Therefore, I'm going to have to rely on them to tell me when they have something to say. So he's taking a swipe at the demanding professors like uh, fictional Kingsley, Professor Kingsley in the paper chase. Well, of course, that's not what the professors were doing at Harvard. I think on some level, surely Osborne understood this. They weren't really trying to uh, draw students out because they thought uh, that kind of uh, back and forth, that kind of interchange would be the uh, most educational for the other students. What they were, he, they were doing was putting pressure on students to prepare. Uh, and in that way, sort of uh, encouraging, if not ensuring, that people invested heavily in studying and being prepared for class and therefore in getting the most out of law school because that's what it took to survive. Um, so, look, it's easy to... Clearly, uh, that's a thing of the past. Clearly, Osborne took the more modern approach and, and clearly that more modern approach is, you know, why should, uh, you know, you, why should you have these autocratic teachers? I mean, that wasn't that awful. But, you know, the one thing that gets lost is the truth is... Um, there was a little positive aspect to that. And uh, maybe there was a sadistic element to it that, that, that shouldn't be honored. But the fact of the matter is, um, there is something to be said for putting some pressure on students to prepare. There is something to be said for having uh, serious requirements that students have to meet that causes them to get out of their comfort zone, that causes them to have to work harder than they otherwise would. Uh, in fact, there's kind of no substitute for that. Huh. Well... I mean, we're just back to the same thing we talked about a few weeks ago with NYU. Yes, I guess that's right. And that professor, Maitland Jones, was saying students are no longer preparing. Yeah. You know, they're not doing uh, the reading or whatever. Right. And uh, so the the trick is, you know, what is the solution? How do you create, what kind of incentive can you create Mm -hmm. that gets the student to prepare but doesn't destroy them psychologically for the rest of their lives. Well, and, and, and so, there must be an answer. Well, there is an answer. And, but, but, and I will say, well, look, I think there's an answer. But I will say that my students, you know, they're very grade conscious. Um, but I, I'm proud. I feel that uh, I'm, a, if anything, I'm too easygoing. Maybe that's not true. Uh, but uh, there comes a point when there are uh, papers to prepare or something like that, where the students suddenly realize the rubber's meeting the road. And they want all kinds of help in terms of, can you look at my paper in draft form? Can you tell me exactly what to do? Tell me exactly what to do. Tell me exactly what to do. And, and my view is, you know something? I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. This but, is, the, the, what you have to learn is how to think for yourself. But part of this is, um, I think students may be under the impression that you don't need to prepare to go to a lecture. 
Au contraire. Yeah. Okay. If you've done any preparation, mm-hmm. you're getting a lot more out of the lecture. Right. But right? They, you are mentally engaging. And, and, and I've almost said that. It, it's more, it's a conversation. You right. know what the professor is talking about. The professor, you know, no one is such a good lecturer that they can spoon feed you and fill you with right. knowledge right. in one to three hours. Right. Okay. But if you have, done any exercises or reading that goes with that lecture, you have a chance. So the law professors um, are saying, you know, nobody's going to do this unless they have to do it at gunpoint. Right. Okay. Students do prepare for quizzes. They prepare for tests. They do not prepare for lectures. Well, that's the problem. But that's where the learning can happen. Yeah. Look, you're right. You're exactly right. And I don't know the answer. And I've said almost that those words word for word. To my students, and I feel very confident that it, it fell completely on deaf ears. Yes, I and I said it all the time to my students as well. Yeah. I said, I, I, you know, uh, don't depend on me to come up with all the knowledge. Right. You know, this is a, a joint effort between you, me, and the, the, the well, textbooks, look, I mean, etc. I think it's important to recognize that if, if you're not going to put pressure on students, uh, there's there's a lot of good to that, but you have to recognize something is lost. And uh, yeah, I think there's the way a, a way to find, yeah, maybe. to do to put pressure well, on. As I said, trying. without we, we keep trying wounding, but I don't I don't mind putting pressure on. Okay, so <laughs> go ahead. Uh, you had this is the art segment. And much uh, yeah, I don't have art. much to say. I, I read a great uh, an article about what seems to be a fun exhibition in L.A. Yeah, uh, about. Uh, Art, uh, let's see, the um, it's called Archive of the World, Art and Imagination in Spanish America, 1500 through 1800. It's showing the influence of Europe and how it came through the Spanish conquistadors mm-hmm. to uh, Ecuador, um, Mexico, you know, all over, you know. Um, and uh, it looked interesting. You can look at paintings, they say, and see influence of Rubens mm-hmm. in the, you know, Mexican artists or whatever. And, and you say, wow, did that get there? And it demonstrates how. Problem is, the um, exhibition closes today. Uh, so, like, okay. <laughs> you know, what's the point? Um, but there was another fun, uh, interesting article about uh, the possibility that a, a another Artemisia Gentileschi has been uh, discovered. So she's a 17th century painter. Was one of the you know very few, probably the greatest female painter of the period, okay? Mm-hmm. But uh, she um, grew up working in her father, Orazio's uh, workshop. Mm-hmm. And a lot of her paintings were actually attributed to him. Oh, really? Uh, for many years. So it took a while to kind of sort out, you know, what were her paintings. And she's a, a long, interesting, you know, um, occasionally violent uh, life story. Uh, but anyway, getting back to the point, uh, in, uh, in 2020, uh, the Sursak Palace was bombed in Lebanon, Beirut. And um, uh, there was this painting there that uh, people didn't really take too seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it got badly damaged. That caused people to look at it. Mm-hmm. And now uh, people think... This could be another Gentileschi. And it's a painting of Hercules or Heracles and Omphale. And from the great story of uh, Hercules 
kills somebody. And as punishment, he has to be Omphale, the queen of Lydia, um, Asia Minor, um, slave oh. for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, you know, it, it ends up being kind of a fun story for artists and writers because uh, he has to do, here is a woman who can tell this, you know, big, masterful, burly guy to do anything she wants him to do. And so there are lots of situations, you know, there's a wonderful Rubens painting where he's scantily dressed uh, and, you know, uh, spitty wool or something doing her bidding. But there's a Lucas Cronach, the elder painting where he, the women are dressing him up as a woman and uh, making fun of him. So there, there's, you know, all this kind of gender play and um, sexual play in these paintings. So it's an interesting subject. Anyway, so this is uh, actually... It came to the notice of the Gettys, and they have uh, offered to restore it. It is ripped, it's torn, it's filled with shrapnel and broken glass, mm -hmm. so it has a fair amount of damage, mm -hmm. um, and it's huge painting, like six by eight. And uh, so it's going to be at the Getty um, being restored, and will be on view there as well oh. for a while, right. uh, until... Um, the palace. You want to say the name of the painter again for those of us who can't listen that quickly? Artemisia Gentileschi. Ah, okay. And her daddy was Orazio. Orazio. And he was buddies with your friend Caravaggio. Oh, my friend, yes. Yes. Caravaggio. So, uh, I mean, yeah. all uh, pretty good pedigree. All right. So there was just, uh, just an interesting article, just a quick note on this before we just close with a couple of obituaries. Uh, so article on Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler is a great player for the Miami Heat. As you have observed, I wear a T-shirt that says Jimmy Buckets on it. Jim, gift Who gave Michael. you that? That Michael was from Michael? Yeah, oh, okay. sure. My brother Michael. And it's uh, because Michael Michael's in Miami. Who else uh, would run into a T-shirt called Jimmy Buckets? And that's the nickname of Jimmy Butler. And he's a I guy. thought you got it like the Goodwill store or something. I, I know it's not your favorite T-shirt, but uh, let's put that aside. It's a gift. I like it. And my point is, you know, Jimmy Butler is, is an intense competitor, is a hard-to-handle guy. He's been bounced around from a few teams. But on the other hand, he brings a lot of success. And I think it's fair to say no one in the NBA plays harder than Jimmy Butler. And it, 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 you, it's surprising to be able to say that in such a definitive way. But I think it's clearly true. And with this article, just as just a, apropos of nothing, just talks about the fact that Butler came... Uh, out of nowhere, he was not highly recruited and had much basketball background as a young kid. And somehow he got to t something called Tyler Junior College in Florida, where, uh, you know, he uh, befriended a guy named uh, John False. And a lot of this is a uh, discussion with this fellow False. And uh, who, uh, I'm sorry, Joe False. And they were teammates and... Uh, it was a very tough program, a very tough program, but they had a good coach and he built them up and he worked hard. And, uh, you know, he just played like his hair was on fire all the time. Uh, even though he wasn't skilled, he just kept working and working and working. Uh, and eventually, uh, not eventually, after a year or two, uh, Fultz got a, an offer from Marquette to transfer. It's a major college program. And he said to the new coach there, he said, I'm not coming unless you take this guy, Butler. And uh, they took him. That's the only reason that uh, Marquette took him. And uh, they talk about them going to the McDonald's, which had a fax machine, a fax is letter of intent. But, you know, he has no background. And what they come back to is this at a certain point. They say, look, 
Jimmy Butler, here's what they say. Uh, they can't, they said that Jimmy Butler does not give details about how he grew up. Uh, he has no interest in rehashing his childhood outside of Houston, which is where he grew up, I guess. On only a couple of occasions has he spoken about how his mother kicked him out of the house when he was 13, how he survived by couch surfing for several years, and ultimately some friend's family took him in. And Fultz says, look, it's a quote, I'm not personally going to talk about his business. That's his business. But if you take everything away from somebody, and you have to learn what that feels like at a young age, that would drive anybody to be like, I'll never go back to that. A lot of people will never understand what that's like because they can't even imagine it. And, you know, you don't think about where these guys all come from. But with Jimmy Butler, you can believe it. He does play like there's something else going on, Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, it's kind of interesting. Okay, so just two obituaries quickly. One is... um, Jules Bass, and I know you were interested in this to some degree, because Jules Bass is one of the co-producers of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Yeah, I, I told you, I can so clearly see the graphic of the name Jules Bass in the credits. Yes, the, the producers are called Rankin Bass, Rankin being the other producer, and they did, um, this is stop action uh, cartoon with some songs. And this was the way they did it. So they had Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. This was done in 64, uh, featuring, of course, Burl Ives as Sam the Snowman. I don't have to tell you that. Fred Astaire as the narrator. And no, Fred Astaire was the narrator. In, for Frosty. For a different one. There yeah, you go. Yeah. For Yes. That's, that's, the name of it is actually Santa Claus is Coming to Town, which they did six oh, years okay. later. Where Fred Astaire was the narrator, Mickey Rooney was the voice of Chris Kringle. Mm-hmm. And there's another one which I didn't know. Maybe you do. Jack Frost. I don't know that one. Thunder 79 with Robert Morse no. voicing the title role. In any event, uh, apparently uh, they picked up the stop-action technique in Japan. At least well, Rankin did. did. Oh, Rankin did? Yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, uh, and you know, I've sat through a couple of these. I, I guess it's okay. It's, I know you, you, you value it a little more than I do. It's fine. It, it's fine. But everybody loves it. It's cute. So, and everybody loves it. But here's what... And, here, and the thing is, it's not even... You know, it's not like it's even that smooth. Or oh, that, no, it's not. It's rough. You know. And, it's, and I'll tell you something. It and looks that's old. part of the charm of it. You could not put that on and sell people in the notion it was made within the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. You know it's old. Yeah. You know it's old. And but yet here's what, a charm to this here's what surprised me. I mean, I know it's on every year, but I figure they, they need filler. But it's not the way it is. Here's a quote from uh, CBS's former president of marketing talking about these films, the Rudolph film and the others. Quote, they're the fabric of our Christmas hearth, the wood in the Christmas fire. You knew Christmas was coming when Rudolph and Frosty showed up on CBS. Well, that's true. Okay. I I didn't fully appreciate that, but I credit it. Yeah. I credit it. There you go. Uh, very valued. When you think but about it, it's crude. But what I thought was interesting was they did a lot of works. Yeah. Um. And they even did some TV shows and movies, you know, non-animated things. Right. But they always work separately. Yeah, they didn't. It sounds like they didn't. That would be, you know, yeah. working away in the U.S. and Rankin would be, be in Japan, Japan right. with the animators or whatever. Also, one one did the music and the other was more for the animation. Right. But they said uh, there there was, you know, it was never efficient. It was never, you know, necessary for so both of them to be in room. the same room. Yeah. And there was no Zoom then. And finally, Lenny Lipton died. So who's Lenny Lipton? Lenny Lipton 
wrote the lyrics for Puff the Magic Dragon. Uh, and, uh, you know, the ubiquitous song. When did he write it? Uh, when did he write it? Uh, in 1963. Uh, no, maybe. 1962 or something. Well, he might have 60. He, he, he wrote just, a poem in 1962. He wrote a poem. Yeah. And he left it in somebody's typewriter. Well, yeah, he left it in Peter Yarrow's typewriter. In other words, he was, he was rooming with Peter Yarrow. They were Cornell students. They were both physics majors. Interesting. And in 1963, uh, Yarrow put the uh, poem to music, and it was performed by his folk trio. And, of course, Peter Yarrow's folk trio was Peter, Paul, and Mary. Right. And uh, Puff the Magic Dragon, you know. It was based on some tr- other... Right, poem based on Ogden Nash's uh, poem called The Tale of Custard the Dragon. Uh, but the key thing... Uh, well, I know, the question, the question uh, that yeah. everybody well, has. Well, let me, let me close right. with that before I get to that. Anyway, Lipschitz had a, didn't, never wrote a song. He wasn't a songwriter, wasn't a performer. What he was interested in, physics-related things. He became interested in 3D technology. He made so much money uh, from uh, Puff the Magic Dragon that he said it was like his MacArthur Fellowship. He was able to spend time on whatever he was interested in. And he really became a figure in developing technology in 3D films. And a lot of his technology was used in a lot of well-known 3D films, although he still, you know, he had 60 patents or something. He still sounded somewhat disappointed and then 3D films were never taken seriously. So they're always spectacle right. films, they're cartoons. But it's used in a lot of technology. It's used in a lot of technology. So um, Things he came up with. Uh, yeah, so he's it's just a, so funny because an accomplished guy. In many it? ways, it sounds like it's such an insipid little song. Yeah, you know, but that's what funded all of it. And uh, it's, in, it's in Avatar, it's in Chicken Little, uh, it's in Coraline, all his technology. But the fact is, um, let me get to the critical question you were getting into before, where people always ask about Puff the Magic Dragon: Are the lyrics really about drugs? And the answer is like marijuana, like Puff. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. The answer is no. The answer Lenny Lipton, who wrote it, can definitively say, no, the song has nothing to do with drugs. So everybody out there who's sort of the similar age that you and I are, who grew up thinking that that song was about drugs and it was somehow very suggestive and uh, naughty, not the case. It's about a magic dragon. Anyway, he um, sounds like a very interesting Yeah. uh, person. Interesting guy. I, I would never have thought... That a physicist yeah. wrote those lyrics. No, nor, nor would I have ever thought that Peter Yarrow studied physics. So there you go. You never know. He was always the kind of the studious one of the three of them, uh, Peter Paul and Mary. Yeah. He, he was a sort of serious bent. Uh, okay. So that's what we've got this week. We've got to get out into the fall weather. Uh, until next week, which will be in November. Uh, this is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger with Tamsin and Dan read the paper Happy Halloween. Yeah.